Hello and welcome to another magical Saturday stream. I'm your host, Joe Magician, and today we'll be taking our two-hour lecture back into the main books again. Last week we talked about Sir Robert Strong, otherwise known as the Mountain Gregory Clegane, and this week we're going to stay in that vein and we're going to talk about the guy whose Kingsguard spot opened up to allow Robert Strong to become a Kingsguard, the lover boy down in Dorne, the soiled knight himself, that is of course Sir Aris Oakheart, the guy who actually, ha ha ha, from George, introduces us to the Strong family. It is within his POV that we learn about Sir Lucamore and all the fun, fun stuff. There's, there's quite a lot of different connections between Aris and other characters. He sits, that's a bad time for a phone call. Nope. I'm going to go ahead and mute my phone. <laughs> This looks like listening through my headphones. I'm like, what is that music? <laughs> What's going on? Disturb. Turn off everything. Okay, there we go. Sorry, guys. What was I saying? Oh, yeah. The end. Who seems sort of inconsequential as the story is going on, but sits right at the center of the Queensmaker plot. The quote unquote Dornish master plan, if you want to talk about it, if you want to talk about it that way. And. One of the driving factors and motivations for Arian Martel as we move into the Winds of Winter. Uh, Aris is a one chapter POV. He shares that honor with mostly PO with epilogue and prologue characters, but also Melisandre of Ashai. So it's it's one of those questions of why is Aris Oakheart this random ass character in Dorne? Why is his POV and this chapter worth including in a feast for crows and a dance with dragons and i think the answer to that is that well we'll get into it but it tends to be that aris fills a very particular role not that way he fills he fits fills a very particular role for george in fleshing out certain parts of the story and reinforcing certain thematic and actually um literary references that george loves if you haven't, if you haven't seen the uh, the updated title and the title card on this video, I'm just going to let you ahead of time. It's Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, the Arthurian legend and poem that recently became the movie known as the Green Knight. These things are heavily intertwined with each other. Oh, thank you for the super sticker, three dollars from Patrick Morales. Thank you so much, Patrick, with a Sheba telling me to ha asking how it's going. Going okay. We're going to talk about the Green Knight today. If you guys have been watching me on Twitter or in the patrons Slack, I ha I really love the movie The Green Knight. And as I was reading Sir Aris's chapter, I got really excited. I was like, "Oh my god, this is this is serendipitous." The Green Knight, Sir going in the Green Knight, parallels almost perfectly with uh, Sir Art Art Martel, which I I don't know if I've ever heard that part before. I am sure much smarter than people than me noticed that. I'm assuming Lady Gwyn did, as Arthurian legends are her shit. But I thought that was kind of an interesting way to look at it and a way for me to talk about the Green Knight, which I really, really enjoyed watching. Oh, yeah, I guess I can't spoil the Green Knight. I mean, at the, yeah, at this point, if you don't know it's in that story. Come on, man. Did you sleep through lit class, too? I mean, I did that. Actually, funny story about that. One of my teachers in high school. I was uh, half asleep during her class and she decided to call me out instead of like sending me to the principal's office. She decided to essentially ask me a bunch of questions about what she was just talking about. And I, without 
lifting my head answered every one of her questions which stunned her in the class which was kind of fun yeah so that's what we're gonna be doing today ari's oak heart nightly honor duty vows all those things the green knight and maybe a little fun stuff going into the winds of winter because even though he only has one chapter and ari's is decidedly dead his influence is going to continue as long as at least Arya and Martell lives in the story. Before we get to all that, just some regular normal promo stuff. If you haven't noticed from last week, yeah, last week, chapter four of the Dying of the Light read through went up with uh, Maester Mary. Chapter five will be coming out in the next few days. I have to do some editing on that one to get it going. It's quite a long one. I think we finished recording at three hours for that one. So there's going to there's going to be some heavy editing going for that one. If you want, if you don't know what that is, Dying of the Light is George R. R. Martin's first book released back in 1982, I think. And for funsies on my Patreon at the $5 and up level, I'm doing a read through like so many other people do. But I decided not to do Song of Ice and Fire and do my own thing and try out Dying of the Light. And I'm actually really enjoying it. It's a really great insight into George as a writer, and especially baby George, what he was like then what parts of his writing style and what sort of actions he continues to put his characters through. And even the same kind of characters seem to recur all throughout his writing career. So I've been having a good time with that one. Uh, yeah. So chapter five, I'm redlining. Hang on a second. Chapter five with, hang on. It's like test, 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 test. Okay. So that's better. Sorry guys. I was, I was redlining my audio there. Turn that down a little bit. Okay, there we go. Where is Maddie? Ari's oak hearts can be high septum. I mean, the thing the bot came up with. God, I hope so. That'd be kind of funny. So yeah, that'll be coming out soon. I'm obviously working on the next video for the channel. No word on what that is yet because I want it to be a surprise, but it's going to be different. It's going to be amazing. And as always, a slam that MF and like button, uh, the subscribe, the bell button, all the things helps people find the channel. Helps people find the goodness of all the fun we have on Saturdays. And as as per usual, if we get to 150 likes, you guys slam it just just so hard and get all the way up to 150. I'll put on my my Gurmy hat for the rest of the stream. 200 likes. We'll go full wizard. We'll go full Gandalf the rest of the time. So that should be should be a lot of fun. I also want to say thanks to Danny McKay, who sent five dollars through PayPal before the stream started. Thanks, as always, Danny. And to the new patron, Christian Sellis, who signed up only two days ago. So thank you very much, Christian, for signing up. That's at patreon.com slash geomagician. All right, so who's ready for <laughs> one of the least talked about POVs in A Song of Ice and Fire? That is, of course, Ari's Oak Heart. Yeah, he, he tends to get overlooked quite a lot. He as as I mentioned, he's a one POV character. And most people don't consider him a particularly interesting one, especially because he sits right in right in the middle of a feast for crows. He seems sort of not even as as important to Arian is obviously the central POV to the Dornish plot. But even next to her, Ario Hota gets three chapter, two or three chapters, I think. Arius only gets one, and it's a uh well, it's it's largely a sex scene of a chapter. So he tends to get forgotten. He's also not a super, super interesting guy. To, in terms of the POV, it's not like people were aching for Ari's Oakheart when you're reading the first three books. So it's fair that Ari gets overlooked. But there's a really good quote here that I 
that I think kind of breaks down a lot of the ways that Aris is an interesting character and why he's worth looking at, not only for himself, but what the thematics and the different parts of the story he ties into. This is this is right after a sex scene. Pretty explicit sex scene. too. So this is Ariane talking. She says, your hands are shaking, she pointed out. They would sooner be caressing me, I think. Must you be in such haste to don your clothes, sir? I prefer you as you are, unbed, unclad. We are our truest selves, a man and a woman, lovers, one flesh, as close as two can be. Our clothes make us different people. I would sooner be flesh and blood than silks and jewels, and you... You are not your white cloak, sir. I am, Sir Ari said. I am my cloak, and this must end for your sake as well as mine, if we should be discovered. Ooh, boy. Ooh, boy. So... Right, right off the bat, I mean, that's that could be taken right out of John and Egret's story. I believe that they talk about John's black cloak probably in the same way. You can sort of see Aris and Ariane as a bit of a mirror to the two of them. But it also comes up with Samwell and uh, Gilly. This is not a particularly new suggestion within George's story. The idea of knights playing with their vows and trying to... And how those vows and the cloaks they wear tend to define them. Yeah, I don't think anybody ever really thought that the Ari and Ari sex scene was like the best thing in the books. Although I don't think it's supposed to be. The uh, the important part of it is kind of like Sam's thing where people make fun of Sam and Gillies for the fat pink mask and all that stuff. I don't think it's meant to titillate. I don't think it's meant to be like something you read pornographically. I think it's just supposed to be... What happens when a dude who's been celibate for 10 years is being seduced by a beautiful princess? Oh, Smith Crazy says, Aris is the guy at the party you'd say hi to and immediately not have any more conversation points. That is brought up quite a few times talking about Aris. How people are like, boy, this guy is not the sharpest, sharpest sword in the bunch. Johnny Egret was a lovely romance, though. Aris and Ariane not so much as Gaspar do. I think at the moment... I think the way Aryan thinks about Aris afterwards is uh, much closer to how John feels about Egret, but I digress. We'll get there. So to start off with this stream about Aris, I think we should talk about what we know about him. Like, as we always do, what's his upbringing? Where does he come from? How does these details coming from George tell us about him? And as honestly, we get very, very, very little about Aris Okart and his young life and how he came to be on the Kingsguard, essentially. I mean, that's not really that surprising. He's a one POV character. He dies pretty soon afterwards. He's more or less a bit character throughout the first three books, mostly showing up in Sansa's chapters alone. But even among one POV chapters, we tend to learn a lot more about them than we do from Ares. Like Vermeer Sixskins, Chet, Pate, Crescent. We learn a lot more about these guys and where they've come from than Ares. He doesn't really think about himself that way throughout his internal monologue, which in a way is kind of similar to Ario Hota, where there's a lot of Hota where when you read his chapters, he's sort of just reacting to things around him like a bodyguard. And there's a little bit of that with Ares, but he's also so, so subdued with the, the idea of being a soiled knight and how he feels about Ariane and what he's doing that there's not a lot of time in his head to reflect on like, ah, oh, yes, I remember yesteryear when I was a knight and attorney and all these other kind of things. Ari's, Wukar, Ari's Oakard is wooden. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's a good way of saying it, Tony. There's a lot of wood jokes about Ari's. 
Oh, somebody asked if my silver hair is new. No, this is this is the normal color. But there is just a my hair does not usually look like this. Not just like the fact that it's but it's not styled. There's literally a light right here that's shining down on it. So it makes it shine a bit more than it normally does. So if we don't have a lot about Aris's growing up, I think George actually gives us quite a lot about the history of House Oakheart. And I think the intention is that you're supposed to use some of this to fill in the gaps about Aris's life. So if you never heard of the Oakharts, they are a moderately powerful house from the Reach. They are sworn to the gardeners until the conquest when they obviously burn to the ground and then to the Tyrells afterwards. Uh, they're not quite like the Manderleys to the Starks, but their uh, their relationship to the Tyrells is more is closer to maybe the Glovers or the Umbers. They are a major house in the Reach, but they are not like a critical one. They're not the Boltons. They're not the Manderleys, basically. Not the most powerful vassals, but they're not irrelevant. They're not tiny. They're not like the Osgrays, basically. They're far above the Osgrays. But in terms of the larger politics of the realm, they don't tend to matter that much they sort of go where the Tyrells or the gardeners did before them one of the reasons that they have such a such an important role in the reach to be honest is that they are one of the legendary garth green hand houses they can trace their lineage back to one of the uh, mythical sons of garth Greenhand. this son is of course uh john the oak that name should creating some visuals in your head uh, thinking about what kind of person you would know that would be called the Oak. And they all are right here. He was a gigantic eight foot tall man, strong as an Oak tree. Wait, that, that's kind of weird. So he's a giant knight that is named after really huge and strong trees. Uh, I guess another way you could say it is that John the Oak was kind of a green knight. I guess you could say. Obviously, what I'm getting at here is the Green Knight from the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight from Arthurian legend that I mentioned earlier. The recently released excellent movie from Dev Patel, which you should go watch if you can. It's streaming. The sigil as well from the Oak Hearts is very reminiscent of the Green Knight from the story. If you look at it, it's three oak leaves on a yellow shield. This is pretty evocative of when the Green Knight enters King Arthur's court. He has a bow of holly with him. In the movie, he does the same thing, holding it, it's over his head. And there's even a named member of the family that lines up with the story. There is, of course, Sir Gawain Oakheart, uh, who shows up in the Hedge Knight. Doesn't have a big role, but he is definitely there. Guilty Undertaker says an Ent. Yep, I was, was going to get to that, too. I don't think this is meant as like a literal one-to-one -one comparison. I think it's a reference that, if you get it, it informs the way you should be thinking about Sir Aris and the rest of the family. That his story is going to probably have a lot to do with Sir Gawain the Green Knight. And Sir Gawain in particular, who as a character struggles with the exact same things that Sir Gawain does, which is his knightly vows, chastity, honesty, bravery. These are all thematics within Aris Oakheart. And even in the, the recent movie, if you watch it, Gawain's story is one of a very flawed character rather than a perfect one whose flaws are sort of tested at every turn and that his fatal flaws are um, basically being human and that he's being asked to do inhuman things by being a knight. And that's sort of the challenge of being one of these Arthurian characters. And that's exactly what you see for Aris. We'll get more into that as we unpack Sir Aris's uh, storyline. But just keep in mind, by the way, that the story of the Green Knight in Sir Gawain is about 
beheading. Those are one in the same. And f- actually, somebody in the chat just said, I thought you were going to mention this uh, Mackenzie Manning. I thought you were going to mention the Seed is Strong. I am going to mention it because of the for those of us who like keeping track of these giant characters that are walking around a Saga of Ice and Fire, House Oakheart and House Strong seem to be a matched pair. John the Oak, who was already eight feet tall, continued his line by marrying a giantess, creating a, a line of these massive, strong, tree-like warriors. As Guilty Undertaker said, Ents, essentially an army of living trees of oaks, Ents, baby weirwoods. Uh, the eight foot tall of John the Oak and his giantess seems extremely reminiscent of other characters, particularly Duncan the Tall, Brian of Tarth, Sandor Clegane, Gregor Clegane in particular, Arwen Strong, Lucamore Strong. If you wanted to make a case for where did House Strong come from, if it wasn't Artos the Strong, then John the Oak would probably be a good guess. And one thing I want to say about these is these connections don't have to be literally true. Like, I think these are meant just for the uh, sharp eyed reader, as George likes to tell them, that he is inviting you to think of all these other characters when you read Aris. You don't have to believe that there is a secret bloodline that connects the Strongs to Dunk and then all I'm going back to Garth and all these other crazy, like trying to track a family tree back 10,000 years. All you have to, at a basic level, all you have to do is see that George is introducing them as that all these characters are foils and reflections of each other. When he talks about Brienne, you can compare her to Dunk, Sandor, Gregor, all these other characters. It's like this, it's like a wheel of these same type of person that he keeps working his way through in thematics. Climbing him like a tree. Yeah. Ariane certainly climbs a tree. Sasuke tried to uh, read Seguin the Green Knight. Yeah, it's a hard read. So is a lot of Old English and Welsh tales. They're not meant for the modern audience and they're not meant to entertain in the same way. So they did a great job translating that to a movie, a very good movie, because I think if you did a faithful recreation of Seguin the Green Knight, not a lot of people would probably watch. Dunk the Elm. Yeah. Well, Dunk does sleep under an oak tree, I believe. Right? That's where his sigil, his sigil comes from. It's a it's an oak tree with a sunset and a comet going underneath. So mayhaps maybe there's a connection along with this stuff. There's a lot you can kind of infer about Aris, which I think is the main trick that George is using. Why doesn't he tell you more about Aris Oakheart? Because he's I don't think he's less of a standalone character in his own right, that he's more like an amalgam amalgamation of many others and sort of an embodiment of the themes throughout POVs that is basically walking and talking around, however briefly he does those things, that he's sort of plugging a hole in the story rather than being a driving force behind it. Oh, it's an elm tree? Close. So the things we learn about Ari Sokart is that he's uh, relatively young. He's the a younger son of the Lord of Old Oak, who doesn't get a name, which carries some common characterizations within George's story. So he's a second son, basically. And the second and third sons or fourth sons of great lords often have very few options for advancement. Hereditary inheritance makes sure that they will probably never get lands of their own. They'll never be able to hold their their own future that, you know, they're they're not really going to go anywhere. They're not going to get a castle. They're not going to get a manor. They're not going to get their own vassals or anything like that. 
unless their older siblings meet tragic ends, which is something that is so obviously rewarding in feudalism, how it's a winner take all game. that it kind of makes sense that kinslaying is like the ultimate sin within a song of ice and fire because it's it must be so it is so common. It's so obvious that siblings should kill each other in order to take the lordship for themselves. Oh, yeah, he, he plugs some holes. Ari's plugs holes. Kristen, Christina K says, Ari's is also kind of like a microcosm of how damaging Westeros' brand of masculinity is. He dies because of his guilt, and he's guilty over something that's totally normal to do. Uh, we'll get into why he essentially committed suicide by Hota later, but I th- there definitely is a sense that Ari's is a character made by his society and that his death comes at the is at the expense of essentially his job and his position in the birth order, which is what we're kind of what we're talking about here. The most they can really expect to do is basically they're basically going to spend their lives at court in tourneys or unless they are particularly uh, clever and want to join the maesters, then basically all they have left to them is to join some kind of soldiering organization. You see the the mercenary companies over in Essos quite often take these sort of guys on like, wow, like Oberyn did when he joined the Golden Company. The Golden Company is basically made up of second and third sons, along with literal second sons. There used to be the Night's Watch as an option. That used to be a place for where guys like Ares would probably have ended up. But the lack of war within Westeros, basically in between the different kings and the idea that justice came from the central crown meant that far fewer people are going to the watch and it has sort of crumbled. But that's basically it. And Aris is no different. We learn that his father is dead, presumably a soldier of some kind. That seems to be what the Oak Hearts do. They're these giant warriors who train from a young age. And we also learned that his father and pretty much the entire line of the Oak Hearts hate the Dornish, hate them as much as they could. And as we learned from Aris's POV, the Oakarts have literally made their names and their glory by marching into Dorne to kill as many of the Dornish people as they could. He speaks of tapestries back at Old Oak, like, I don't know, Edrin Oakart, who sat in the tapestry in the home of Old Oak with a hundred Dornish heads at his feet. Wow. That's a real blood for the blood god moment there from the Oakharts. We also have Sir Alistair Oakhart and Sir Oliver Oakhart, known as the Green Oak, literally a green knight, dying alongside King Daron the Young Dragon in the ambush by the Dornish at the Prince's Pass. And another tale of another Lord Oakhart who died marching his way into Dorne, died in battle with the Dornish, and then his daughter got stolen by a will of will and sold into slavery, which... Oakarts then tried to pay back by encouraging, <laughs> I think, encouraging the Targaryens to sell one of the Martell princesses into slavery as a uh, revenge. It's essentially a long-term revenge plot going on between the Oakarts and the Dornish. The long story short here is that the Oakarts are a house that define themselves by how many Dornish they kill, how much Dornish blood they can spill on their swords, and it's, I think it's a bit similar if you look at a character like Big Bucket Wool out of the the northern clans where he says that he wishes to die with Bolton blood on his lips rather than dying in winter and that sort of informs what we're learning about the Oakarts in their minds an honorable way to die is essentially surrounding yourself with Dornishmen and swinging your sword and dying in the sands 
Yes, Guilty Undertaker. It was Sir Oliver the Green Oak Oakheart that died with Sir Darren. I mean, King Darren the first. Gasper, do do you believe the Marcellus swap with the lookalike theory? No, no, that one's that one's straight up crazy pants. Kirkland Brand Knight. <laughs> Wait, what? What are you guys talking about? Aris is a Kmart Barristan. Actually, I was I'm going to get that a little bit. That's not far off. I think that's a pretty good comparison. The family themselves also tend to go wherever the reach goes. There's no real hint that they're trying to usurp the gardeners or the Tyrells. You see other families like the Peaks and the High Towers eventually making plays to be lords of the reach. That's not really the Oakhart's thing. That's not how they think. They're not plotters. They're not schemers. They're marcher lords. They want to bathe in blood rather than play the Game of Thrones. And that's very much indicative of Arius's character. He kind of embodies that attitude. Oakart is a tool. Well, he's a pawn. I think it's the right way of saying it. So the one thing we learn about a young Arius Oakart is that he joined, dreamed of joining the Kingsguard and wanted to be one of the greatest knights with their white cloaks. Spoiler, there are two other characters who basically dreamed of doing that as children. One of them is Bran Stark and the other one is more or less Bran of Tarth. She wants to be a knight, but you can see with her trying to join the Rainbow Guard of Renly that the Kingsguard ideal is basically what she's going for. And that is some lofty characters in universe to draw comparisons to. And it seems especially on the nose with Brienne, the idea of someone struggling with knighthood and being a true knight versus an obedient knight is something that Brienne and Aris both struggle with, along with obviously Jamie Lannister, Barristan Selmy, Sandra Clegane. Again, these these characters all reflect on each other. But Aris six sits at a key point in the timeline between a lot of these linked plots and characters. Brienne is still young and a bit idealistic about what it means to be a knight, although throughout A Feast for Crows that gets broken down by George. If you think about a progression of how he thinks these knights tend to go, after Brienne you get to somebody like Aris, who is becoming jaded by serving unworthy knight, unworthy kings and seeing his fellow knights essentially not taking their vows seriously. After Aris you get to the next step, which is Jamie, which is somebody who has embraced basically total nihilism about knighthood and more or less just kind of does whatever he wants. He doesn't really care about his vows. That again gets challenged by George, but that's sort of his initial starting condition. And after that, you get to Barrison the Bold, the last stage in the night cycle. Someone who has feels they have lost their honor, but is trying to regain it in a way. Oh, thank you for the more Lee coming through with the super chat. Hey, more. How you doing? I thank you for the $50. Whoa. Thank you for all the fabulous content. Love your channel. No, thank you. Is that Morley's music? Yeah. <laughs> oh, I need more drops. I should have gotten a Morley drop or at least like. Actually, I can do more with this stuff. I don't know why I don't. Oh, another super chat here from Vampris 99. $10. Thank you so much, Vampris. Aris's feelings about his vows and Ariane is almost like this storyline echo of Barrison Selmy and Ashar. If Shara had known about that and reciprocated or at least entertained Barrison's feelings. Ex exactly. Yes, this is directly on point. It's less that this is what I meant that Aris is more an amalgamation of other characters. He's like all versions of them. <laughs> and that, that's how you can tend to think about him. But he sits at this place where I think George recognized there is that point in the knight's life where he hasn't really shown them. And Aris is that character. He also stands in for a few other characters. Not only Barristan, you can think of him in terms of Kristen Cole. You can think of them in terms of Terrence Toyne, Luca Moore Strong. Actually, all the ones he names, 
George essentially uses Aris to give them characterization and it works back and forth. Duncan the Tall, too. This was probably the future of Dunk. Dunk and Brienne are sort of at the same point, at least in their stories. Yes, and the Selmys are a marcher house, too, so the comparisons work. Aris is kind of like a younger Barristan, but also a younger Jamie and an older Brienne. You, you can see how this all works. He's exploring what should be one character's total path by breaking it up into a bunch of different ones, which makes, I think, Aris a lot more interesting because he's not actually a standalone character. He's a character that fits this larger storyline about knighthood. Yeah, also, please slam that like button. 98 likes, 128 liking. Thank you guys for hanging out on a Saturday and ignoring college football, as all should. Yes. Hey, the kids. Going back to Aris in particular a little bit, despite having older brothers, the ruling house, the ruling of House Oakhart fell surprisingly to Aris's mother, Lady, get this, Arwen Oakhart. <laughs> That's right, Aris's mother is named Arwen. <laughs> I mean, Lord of the Rings, even casual Lord of the Rings fans, there should be bells going off all over the place that this character's mother is named after the famous, famous character, the lover of an eventual wife of Aragorn in Lord of the Rings. So that's something that's something to to keep in mind here. That's another way that George is using literary references from other from uh, other stories in order to inform kind of give you some layering for how you should think about Aris that he's almost like a character from Lord of the Rings. He's he's out of place. He's been dropped in from Lord of the Rings into a Song of Ice and Fire and this is essentially what happens when somebody who has those sensibilities is all of a sudden put into George's imagination. Oh, thank you, Robert Smiley. Love the Luca Moore Strong video. Do you mean the video? Like the the House Strong video, or do you mean the stream about Luca Moore? I did both. What house was she born into? Unclear. We don't learn that much about a Lady Arwen, but we do know that she rules effectively for the Oakarts. She sits on the war councils with the rest of the Reachmen. And she's called a small and delicate woman. Again, when you're talking about the Oakarts, George often invites you to think of them literally. So if you think of her as a tree, she's a small and delicate tree, someone that may be about to break, but also somebody that is. That's one way you could think of it, small and delicate. But you'd also think of her as you ever tried to break a, a really small stick that's that's or a, a small tree. They're surprisingly resilient. Um, but yeah, think about that one. Arwen is in this story. Oh, another super chat here from a Smith the Crazy. Smith, Smith, Smith Crazy. Five dollars. Thank you so much. How would you compare Aris and Loris? Both going after with royalty, both Kingsguard, both old families. Just one bigger and less successful. I think there, there are some interesting comparisons between Loris and Aris. They definitely seem to have the same sort of attitude towards the world. But Loris is very much at the beginning of his journey that Aris may be an endpoint if George ever wrote it that way. I also think, though, that if if I had to guess that Aris would find himself quite jealous of Loras, and in particular the attention he gets, the notoriety he gets, the way that the Tyrells get treated in the realm versus the Oakharts, I think that's an interesting point of comparison. Although they will probably they will never meet. I think Loras joined the Kingsguard after Aris already left, so you could maybe see them as subbing in for each other. I think it, the direct comparison is definitely that you replace Aris Oakhart with Robert Strong.
So, but I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody do a direct comparison between Arius and Loras. That would be interesting to read about. I'm just trying to go off the top of my head. But anyway, so, so going back to talking about Arwen and the idea that you should think of the oak hearts as literal trees, that this is going to be a common theme that, yeah, he invites you to think of them as literal physical trees within the family. So what is Ars Oakheart? Well, he's probably, you could call him the young oak, an immature tree. Oh yeah, they did meet each other. Yeah, you're right. They would have met each other at Turney. Uh, that was wrong. I don't think they've met each other as Kingsguard members. But we d I do know that Arius takes his, his jousting pretty seriously. And Laura winning quite a lot, probably dug in his craw. Uh, yes, true. Secret love relationships. Good call. Sorry, I couldn't get a very good answer on that one. I'll try harder next time. So yeah, he's a young oak. He's a sapling. He's an immature tree. That's what you should think of when you think of Ari's oak. So where is he in the current story? So in 290 AC, Ari's is named to the king's guard by King Robert Baratheon alongside his boyhood heroes of Barristan the Bold and sort of Jamie Lannister. And the job is really not all that Ari's thought it would be, would cracked up to be. He personally takes his vows of duty and obedience quite seriously, and he tries to more or less be like a perfect Kingsguard member. You can probably see the influence again of Barristan Selmy on the young knight, that they share sort of similar outlooks. There's a similar disdain for politics and strategy. There's an interesting comparison you can make reading Barristan and Marine to Aris and Dorne. I think those are meant to be sort of twins. You can see them in the same way. And that both tend to try and find a simple comfort in the simplicity of the craft of being a Kingsguard knight. They don't want to be a member of the Kingsguard in order to be involved in royal plots. They want to do it because they like the idea of being a royal bodyguard, essentially. Although uh, one problem for Aris is obviously that right away he notices that his brothers are not the... What's the right way of saying this? The paragons of virtue that their white cloaks disguise them as. These white knights are often closer to soiled knights. In particular, Ari singles out Boros Blunt, Preston Greenfield, and Maron Trant as guys that he knows break their vows in different ways. In particular, Boros and Preston, that they break their vows of celibacy, of the no wives and no children, basically thing, knowing exactly where and who the two men go to break their vows with in particular. He knows Preston Greenfield goes to a particular house when the husband is away, and he knows that Boros Blunt finds himself on the Street of Silk quite a bit. Oh, Disputed Lands. Hey, Amanda, how's it going? Glad to have you here. Hey, Ray1313. Just talking to some Ari's Oakheart. By the way, if you wanted to see this, we were talking previously about Luca Moore Strong and the idea that like all of a sudden everyone was surprised that Lucamore was running around having three wives and 16 children. You can use this part, this part right here, this one chapter, you can use this to look back on Lucamore the Lusty. And you can, so let's, let's run this through. So we have Aris Oakhart, who is not the brightest bulb of the bunch, basically, but even he, he knows exactly which of his Kingsguard brothers sneak off with different women and how often and where they do it. Therefore, you can infer as a reader that, yes, the rest of the Kingsguard during Luca Moore the Lusty's time probably knew for quite a long time that he held this secret for years and they turned a blind eye to it, even the ones that disapproved. 
which suggests that when Luke and Moore got outed to Alisane Jaharis, that it was probably not all of a sudden they figured it out. It was probably a political and or personal reason that he was removed from the Kingsguard. Yeah. Arius, Arius is, I don't think, I don't think Arius is a himbo because I don't think he's um, a good enough person to be considered a himbo. He definitely is. He fits the, uh, the handsome and muscular parts though. I don't, I don't think the mentality. Uh, good call. Isabella Omega. One weird thing is that Jamie and Arius Okart never think about each other. The only time that Jamie thinks about Arius Okart is he looks over and notices that his chair is empty. He goes, huh? That's about it. They don't really come up. Uh, Dino Rob says it says they can't marry or have children and say they can't have sex, right? So they're not breaking their vows. That is what's known as the Knights Watts exception. Quite clearly, that is a strict reading of that. The the essence of the rule is essentially that you're not supposed to be that you're supposed to be devoted to your to the King's Guard or the Knights Watch in total, and that you're not supposed to split your loyalties to other people like your family. Or creating a family. The point of the point of this chapter is again when you read how fi- fi- uh, Fire and Blood, and you read about Luca Moore the Strong. Remember that the part where they everyone goes like, "Oh my God, Luca Moore, how could you?" They all knew. There's a reason it got exposed when it did. That's just a fun thing for fans of how strong and Luca Moore the Lusty. There's definitely a reason he got outed, and it's the same reason that Ari's. Well, probably that Ari's got outed. So Ari's first appears in the story early on, way, way back in a Game of Thrones at Ard 11, when Ned is ruling in Robert's place in King's Landing while he's off hunting boars, the one that eventually kills him. Ari's is mentioned as standing guard over Ned against the terrorized people of Sherer and the Riverlands, which sort of sets up the fact that George was thinking early on that Ari's would be somebody who potentially would maybe have no problems beating down the weak and the innocent if he's ordered to. It's kind of reminiscent of the lessons that Jamie Lannister got from Sir Jonathor Derry when he heard Arius II attacking Queen Rhaella, the infamous and horrible line from Derry, where uh, Jamie says, we are sworn to protect her as well. Jamie had finally uh, been driven to say, we are Derry allowed, but not from him. And Arius seems to have embodied that ethos of the king's guard in quite a big way a fun thing about that i was i was uh, responding earlier to dino rob that exact argument comes up in the soiled knight that is the argument that Ariane makes basically as to why he's not doing anything wrong and that characterization though from aris does not really go away aris routinely over the next few books shows that while he does have some internal conflict over carrying out what he considers immoral orders he still will pretty much always do them and that but his most often job he's the most often deployed as the personal guard to Cersei or Joffrey intermittently and then mostly as Sansa's jailer when he can it seems that he probably tries to pull that job more than the other guys because he feels a little guilty about things we'll get to that a little a little bit later um but the Kingsguard that goes out of their way to step in for Sansa is obviously Sandor Clegane he seems to volunteer for it when the other knights are ordered to do other things. But it's quite clear that Cersei and Joffrey trust Ares to more or less do whatever they say without too much trouble, which and he does them relatively effectively, whereas they think of guys like Boros Blunt and Marin Trant essentially as useless bullies who are only good for carrying out really simple, idiotic tasks. They're like 
Yeah, we can probably trust Aris to do this thing. Also, many characters also note on the fact that Aris does not seem to be that smart, that he's more of a yes man. He sort of just sticks to his task and there's not a lot of not a lot of wheels turning behind the head is the general impression of Aris Hokar to other characters. Actually, Arianne comments on that quite a few times as well in her chapter. She's like, oh, boy, he is not uh, he is not that smart. Although by far, I would say Aris's most infamous treatment of anybody is, of course, Sansa Stark. Many times in the book on and off page, Joffrey ordered the King's Guard to beat Sansa for him, taking a cruel exception to essentially Cersei's parenting advice that a king must never hurt his queen. Therefore, reasons through, well, I'm not hitting her. It's the King's Guard. Therefore, it's okay. Joffrey sucks. And among those who went through with it was all five members of the King's Guard minus Barristan, including Aris Oakhart, excluding Sandor. Sandor's the only one that wouldn't uh, hit Sansa. Although there is, this is a little tricky. We know from Sansa's POV that Aris Oakhart, unlike the rest of the members of the King's Guard, like Sir Boros and Sir Marin, who seemed to enjoy it, that Aris would try and soften his blows as much as he could for Sansa's sake while not looking not looking like he's uh, taking it easy on her. He essentially tried to pull his punt that he was ordered to take and that Sansa thinks well of him compared to the other King's Guard. So the quote here is Sir Aris offered his arm and she would let him lead her from her chamber. If she must have one of the King's Guard dogging her steps, Sansa preferred that it be him. Sir Boros was short-tempered, Sir Marin cold, Sir Mandon's strange dead eyes made her uneasy, while Sir Preston treated her like a lackwit child. Aris Oakhart was courteous and would talk to her cordially. Once he even objected when Joffrey commanded him to hit her. He did hit her in the end, but not as hard as Sir Marin or Sir Boros might have, and at least he had argued. The others obeyed without question, except for the Hound. But Joff never asked the Hound to punish her. He used the other five for that. So I don't think this makes Aris a good person, right? Obviously, the fact that he doesn't hit as hard when he's told to hit a little girl, it, it counts for something, but I don't think it counts for a ton. Like we can see here that there isn't a, somebody that outright refuses to hit Sansa, and that is, of course, Sandor Clegane. And that essentially Sandor implicitly dares Joffrey to ask him to do it, knowing that he will embarrass him by saying no. And I think this is this illustrates one of the reasons that the Hound refuses to be a knight, even when he's named to the Kingsguard by Joffrey. It's P he despises people like Aris who know it's the wrong thing to do to beat Sansa, but then does it anyway. And it asks an interesting question of morality about Ari's Oakheart. Does it really matter if right from wrong and then do the wrong things anyway because of some words you spoke? But there's also some shades of gray in his behavior where that Ari's does try to mitigate the harm he's doing and then goes out of his way to be kind to Sansa afterwards in the way that the other knights do, but he's still hitting her. So it raises the irony in Aris Oakhart as a character that he idolizes the Kingsguard and the great knights that have ever served on it, but it's the unknighted Sander Clegane that actually matches the value of knighthood the most, and that if he wanted to idolize anybody, it should be Sandor. Because he's the one that's brave enough to stand up to 
things that he knows are wrong to do. Even though, of course, Sandor did cut Micah the Butcher's Boy in half. So, I mean, Sandor's not perfect. But in this instance, Ares has a, a character that he could be mimicking, somebody he could be looking up to, and that's in the Hound. And he doesn't. He goes along with the rest of them. And then we do have his own internal POV, where Ares reflects on these actions. And this is what he thinks. It still shames Sir Ares to remember all the times he'd struck the poor Stark girl at the boy's command. When Tyrion had, cho- had chosen him to go with Marcella to Dorne, he lit a candle to the warrior in thanks. So Ares essentially felt that he was trapped by his vows in doing Joffrey's dirty work, and he was happy that Tyrion essentially freed him with this job from Marcella. That he thought it was like a gift from the gods that he no longer had to do it. And he still has enough of his humanity as a character to know that he feels shame and guilt over how Joffrey made him act and how he went through with it, which is honestly more than most than the remaining Kingsguard. He has not totally lost his soul at this point. Aaron M says, I think it shows someone who's trying to do the best they can with the cards they've been dealt, but Germans wants to see that throwing away the cards like Sandor is your best move. Exactly. I think that's the lesson here that Sandor is the right example of how the Kingsguard should act and that Ares is trying to mitigate it, but he ends up just continuing the things that he thinks are wrong. So for the Sandor fans out there, as always, Sandor is probably one of the better examples of a realistic how to be as close to a moral knight as you can be in this world. All the rest of the Kingsguard should look up to him, and instead they look up to guys like Barristan. Not great. Asked Sandor to do it because it was more insulting for those knights to hit her. No, I think I think Joffrey knew that Sandor... He, I think he feared Sandor at some level, especially because Sandor tends to make fun of him, and he doesn't take his shit. He knows the other guys would do it. I think he knows that if he asked Sandor, he would, he would refuse, and that he can't take that, because Joffrey is a... A terrible egomaniac who needs to be loved. So going back to what happens to Ars during the story, Tyrion eventually, as I as said in that quote, Tyrion arranges for the marriage of Princess Marcella to Prince Tristane of the Martells in order to ease tensions that linger from the murders of Elia Martell and Aegon and Rhaenys. However, Tyrion is also aware that he is likely sending Marcella to her eventual death. He sort of doesn't care. Sometimes he cares, sometimes he doesn't. But he recognizes that he probably should send a member of the Kingsguard with Marcella to protect her and to be essentially like the eyes in Sunspear, more or less. And of the Kingsguard that are available, he decides Sir Aris is the best one to go. He sends Marcella, Aris Oakheart, and then some Lannister soldiers down there. So the quote here from Tyrion, it says, an honored guest, Tyrion insisted, I suspect the Martells will try. I suspect Martell will treat Marcella more kindly than Joffrey has treated Sansa Stark. I had in mind to send her Sir Aris Oakheart with her, but the Knight of the King's Guard has her sworn shield. No one is like to forget who or what she is. Small good Sir Aris will do if Sir if Doran Martell decides that my daughter's death would wash out his sisters. Martell is too honorable to murder a nine-year-old girl, particularly one as sweet and innocent as Marcella. So long as he holds her, he can be reasonably certain that we'll keep faith on our side and the terms are too rich to refuse. Marcella is the least part of it. I've also offered him his sister's killer, a council seat, some castles on the marches. So again, Tyrion here is not unaware that he's sending essentially Marcella as a hostage for the Martell's against him. Although he goes on to say that the council seat 
that he's offered Duran is essentially the reciprocation. He's expecting either Duran to show up in person or to send Quentin Tristane, probably not Tristane, Quentin, Ariane, maybe a member of the Sand Snakes to sit on the council to match Marcella. But yeah, Tyrion does recognize that even Ari's Okart being down there, he's not like, he's not Sir Arthur Dane. He's not a, a one-man army. So no matter what, Marcella's in a crazy amount of danger doing this. There's reasons Tyrion's doing that because he isn't like Cersei and he's trying to get revenge for things. But yeah, so Ari's makes the journey with Marcella and arrives safely in Sunspear. He writes some letters back to King's Landing, informing them that Marcella and Tristane surprisingly have been have made a fast young couple who seem to like each other a lot. That Marcella is smitten with Prince Tristane. And then there's the unusual news that Princess Ariane has taken it upon herself to make bestest, bestest friends with Marcella. Now, this runs counter to our expectations of the Dornish response to a Lannister in their midst. And as you're reading this the first time, there should be, again, alarm bells going off. Whoa, what's going on here for the reader that Ariane Martell, who we haven't met yet, is for some reason up to something and trying to befriend, uh, bef- befriend Marcella uh, Baratheon. Oh, another super chat here from Morley. $20. Thank you again, Mor- <laughs> Morley, on a roll as usual. If Brienne gets knighted and becomes captain of the King's Guard in the end, like the show, will she change how the King's Guard behave? Well, I think you can answer that with another example. One of the closest comps in sensibility and temperament to Brienne of Tarth is, of course, Duncan the Tall. Duncan became Lord Commander of the King's Guard, and look at the shitheads that are on it now. It's a question of the Kingsguard reflect the king, more or less. I'm sure the Kingsguard were probably much more well-behaved when Duncan the Tall was Lord Commander, but Marin Trant and Boros Blunt and Man and Moore are shitheads because that's who Joffrey is and that's who Cersei and Robert were. They, they are reflections of, their, of what they want done. It'd be nice if there was a culture change, but... It won't just be from one person, and if it is, it will be one lifetime. Within what, like 50, this is like 70 years after Duncan the Tall dies, and you get this this group. I would hope so, but I would doubt it. So then we get Aris finally arriving in Dorne. He arrives in Dorne with Princess Marcella, and it sort of sets off a chain of events with the different characters. I think the best metaphor for this is how Aris relaxed to this cool new game called Savas, which the Dornish got from Volantis, and they are obsessed with learning, and Marcella loves playing it with Tristane. So here's the quote. Her green eyes narrowed with concentration. Savas, the game was called. It had come to Planky Town on a trading galley from Volantis, and the orphans had spread it up and down the green's blood. The Dornish court was mad for it. Sir Aris just found it maddening. There were ten different pieces, each with its own attributes and powers, and the board would change from game to game, depending on how the players arrayed their home squares. Prince Tristane had taken to the game at once, and Marcella had learned it so she could play with him. So, on kind of a meta level, of like, what is the point of Sivas within A Song of Ice and Fire? It often stands in for a character's ability to play politics and the ever-present Game of Thrones. It requires a tactical mind, one used to using deception and seeing through it, understanding where and where you should strike. That's the point of the game. And Aris 
can't wrap his mind around it. It's an elegant way of George. Let I'm so I'm sorry. I told you before we started. I had a bit of cough. I wasn't feeling very good. It's an elegant way to let the reader know that Aris's a POV will be missing things that the world of politics and deception are above his head. So it's up to you, the reader, to notice them. And man, does Aris miss things. This is a similar thing to like when you're reading Duncan the Tall. Dunk tends to miss a lot of things. It's challenging you, the reader, to do it for you. So the first thing that happens after Aris arrives is that uh, the captain of the guard, Ario Hota, instantly knows that he's going to have to kill Aris Oakheart. It sets up, I talked about early on, about the connections between Gwen and the Green Knight and Sir Aris Oakheart. And this is where it starts. It sets up, there's almost a Christmas game here between Aris and Ario. With Ari standing in for Sir Gawain and Ario standing in for the Green Knight. The White Knight, the captain frowned. So Ari's had come to Dorne to attend his own princess as Ario Hota had once come with his. Even their names sounded oddly alike, Ario and Aris. Yet there the likenesses ended. The captain had left Norvos and its bearded priests, but Sir Ari's Oakheart still served the Iron Throne. Hota felt a certain sadness whenever he saw the man in the long snowy cloak the times the prince had sent him down to, Spun to Sunspear. One day he sensed the two of them would fight, and on that day Oakheart would die with the captain's long axe crashing through his skull. He slid his hand along the slong. He slid his hand along the smooth ashen shaft of his axe and wondered if that day was drawing nigh. That is so intensely Arthurian and reminiscent of the Christmas game of the Green Knight that it's incredibly hard to overlook. This is the setup. At some point, Ario with his giant green with his giant axe, much like the Green Knight, will complete the game and take Aris's head. If you know this stuff going into it, if it's something you recognize on your first read, it's it's satisfying. But it's even more it can be satisfying looking back on it and seeing what George is doing. Yes, that's right. Ario does think he's gonna kill everyone he sees, but it's in particular this relationship to Aris Oakart and how it pays off that it's like Oh, that's what he's doing. This is the Christmas game, except it's in Dorne. The other thing that happens here is again, like uh, Sir Gawain, Aris is uh, introduced to Princess Ariane Martel, and she doesn't content herself with just making Marcella her her friend. She starts to work on the knightly protector of Sir Aris Oakheart, and she ends up playing on his isolation and then using her, I guess, her mega seduction powers. To eventually get the white knight into her bed it's inferred that she essentially just flirted with him a whole bunch got him alone tried to seduce him and then at one point i guess got drunk with him where he declared that he was in love with her and at that point they ended up just non-stop bang a thong between arian and aris whenever he got a chance he would try and find her which if you think about it in terms of gwen the green knight this is gwen failing the test of seduction Keep that one in mind. And Aris also shares a particular trait with with Ario Hota, linking the two bodyguards in the sands, and that he feels extremely out of place in Dornish culture. That Aris stands out. That he feels incredibly uncomfortable in the among the population. He doesn't even like. He doesn't like the food. He generally feels like he could die at any moment. There's a quote early on that says, "Dorn is no fit is no fit place for 
Dorne is no fit place for any oak heart. I mean, that's as simple as you could say it, that Aris is like, I shouldn't be here. I need to leave. Oh, before we do this quote, thank you guys for uh, slamming that MF and like button, hitting the subscribe button, all that things. Got 126 likes. Remember, you get to 150 or put on some cool hats. Although apparently you guys are enjoying my silvery hair today, which, okay, whatever. Each their own. So the quote goes, the night was unseasonably cool. Even for autumn, a brisk, wet wind was swirling down the alleys, stirring up the day's dust. A north wind and full of chill. Sir Ari's Oakhart pulled up his hood, cover his face. It would not do for him to be recognized. A fortnight passed. A traitor had been butchered in the Shadow City. A harmless man who'd come to Dorne for fruit and found death instead of dates. His only crime was being from King's Landing. Okay, Ari's. The mob would find a ferner would find a sterner foe in me. He almost would have welcomed an attack. His hand drifted down to brush lightly over the hilt on the long sword that ha- that hung half hidden amongst the folds of his layered linen robes. The outer with its turquoise stripes and rows of golden suns, and the lighter orange one beneath. The Dornish garb was comfortable, but his father would have been aghast to see. Would have been aghast had he lived to see his son so dressed. He was a man of the reach, and the Dornish were his ancient foes, as the tapestries at Old Oak bore witness. So you can see here that Aris is struggling quite mightily with what he sees as his historical enemies, and that he's probably projecting a bit onto those around him ex- what he is feeling. That I doubt every Dornishman doesn't actually want to kill Sir Aris Oakhart, but it's hard for him to let go of that feeling, and that he's constantly like ready to whip out his sword and fight to the death, which will come up later, that Ari sort of feels that it is... <laughs> what's, what do I, what's the connection? Well, I said Bucket Wool, but um, also kind of like in Forrest Gump, Lieutenant Dan, that there's a feeling of doom around Ari that he knows coming to Dorne as an Oakheart, that the honorable thing is that he die fighting Dornish, basically. So keep that one in mind, that this is his instinct as he's walking around the Shadow City. That's why they need the undead in the Kingsguard. So Robert Strong, ironically, the best Kingsguard. Yeah, but he, I mean, that's what I was saying. He sees daggers in the dark everywhere. I mean, it may be somewhat accurate considering he represents the Iron Throne in the Lannisters, but it feels extraordinarily similar to how Barristan feels a Marine. That he doesn't know enough about where he is to accurately gauge the danger he's in and therefore finds himself fearing everything. That's kind of what Barristan does. That's what Argus does here. They even have a similar response to the many strong spices in Dornish food that often cause a stomach distress to those not used to it. Ario and Aris both have this thing happen to them. <laughs> Maybe a way you could think of <clears throat> them as green knights is the fact that the food makes them want to throw up. And it's the comic thing that when you throw up, your face turns green. Green knights. Ba-dum. Yeah, that's true, uh, Christina, that the weapon descriptions are incredibly sexual. Yeah, the axe is Ario's wife, and that obviously Arius's sword is his dick, because that's how he thinks of it. Or the fruit guy was anyone? Yeah, somebody write the somebody write an analysis of fruit guy that died in Dorne. I also shouldn't you shouldn't overlook here that George makes the point that Arius is a literal tree in the desert, and that's how he sees himself. That this isn't his place, that he should go back, that this is wrong, and yet it's his duty that makes him stay. Again, you can probably contrast this with Sander Clegane, who at the Blackwater, he made the decision to abandon his post in the Kingsguard and 
I guess, his honor for his life. Aris is mostly struggling with the idea on like a subconscious level that he's pretty, he's pretty sure he's going to die in dorm and that he's sort of putting this vigilance into a sense of doom that he knows there's an axe hanging over him. But again, if he was like Sandor, he would cut and run and save his life, that he that his life is not worth the duty he's been given. So it's it's weird how George is doing this. He's like setting up in all instances. It's like, Aris, what should you do? I don't know. What did Sandor do? Go do that. That's the right way to deal with the King's Guard. But by far, the thing that Aris Okart struggles with the most is his relationship to Arya and Martell, as he considers it a great stain on his honor and reputation that he is going to the Bone Mountains with a woman. And <laughs> the funny thing is, he's actually basically memorized all the other knights in the King's Guard throughout history who famously vote, uh, broke their vows. He lists them off: Lucamore Strong, Terence Toyne, Kristen. Kristen Cole, et cetera, et cetera, even among his own brothers. But he finds that he can't help himself, that he feels in a way corrupted by his Kingsguard brothers and Aryan into accepting that it's okay to ignore his vows as long as they make him feel pleasure, basically. That there's an implicit hypocrisy within these guys of which vows they decide they have to stick to. Like the ones where it's like you have to obey the king and you have to go beat up little girls. Well, pfft. That one you have to take seriously, but the ones about chastity, whatever. Oh, you guys actually theory crafting a severe spy. Sure. Why not? Spies everywhere. Yeah. And that ends up being sort of a problem where Ari's sort of has this internal conflict. Like, well, I kept those vows. Maybe I can break this one. No, 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 I shouldn't. I'm, I'm a white cloak. I have to be better than everyone else, but the white cloaks aren't that good anyway. Maybe I don't have to be that good anyway. And it kind of bounces back and forth in that way with his internal PO. I think honestly, the closest mirror to this is I talked about it earlier. It's Jon Snow. As in a feast for crows, we are hot off the death of Egret and Jon's multi-chapter intense worrying about what kind of person he is to break his vows with Egret so vigorously and often. Uh, Samwell as well. Well, as well, uh, has the same kind of problem with Gilly in the same book happens in A Feast for Crows. And then, of course, we have Maester Eamon's words back to Jon Snow when he says, then Lord Eddard is a man in 10,000. Most of us are not so strong. What is honor compared to a woman's love? Yeah, Aris. What is love, honor compared to a woman's love? Arian Martell. What is duty against the feel of a newborn son in your arms or the memory of a brother's smile? Wind in words, wind in words. We are only human. And the gods have fashioned us for love as our great glory and there as our great tragedy. So if you wanted another example of George using Eamon's words as a major plot point, Ari's Oakheart. He is doing the exact same thing. He is struggling with these exact questions, even though he's never met Eamon. It's just it's a function of how these sort of vows of celibacy and duty and honor are antithetical to being a person. <laughs> They essentially ask you to stop being a human to do these things and to not feel. That's the big thing. Aris feels bad for feeling. That, that's his great sin. It's the idea that as he loves Arianne, that, he, that there's some part of his knightly self that is slipping away, which is kind of a crazy thing to say. Somebody said earlier about the ideas of masculinity within Westeros and how that's destroying Aris internally. Yeah, it is. The idea that he has to be this perfect knight 
is causing him harm doing something that's pretty normal. So we also see this exact same struggle within, again, the Green Knight and Sir Gawain in Legend. As depicted in the movie as well as in the poems, Sir Gawain has the same struggle. He's tempted by Lady Bertilak, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's actually the Green Knight's wife into having uh, sex with her. When she can't seduce him, they instead exchange kisses. And then there's a whole thing where he has to give the kisses back to Lord Bertilak, essentially the Green Knight. It, it's all interconnected. If you watch the movie and were confused about that, the Lord that he meets is actually the Green Knight. It turns out that Ares is not as strong as Sir Gawain and gives into Arian's seduction. They end up meeting not so discreetly, and eventually uh, Ares literally falls in love with Arian Martell. Although he does internally recognize how this is tearing him apart, his view of the world as a Kingsguard, allowing him to he there's like a domino effect where after breaking this one vow, well, maybe it's okay to break other rules and vows in his mind that like it's like an interconnected piece that each vow supports the other. You break one, the rest can come undone. And that's essentially how Ariane essentially unravels the Sir Arius Oakheart. Oh, gonna check PayPal real quick. Ooh, well, we're we got a little ways to go. Got about a half hour to go. How's everybody doing? Watch you guys instead of waiting till the end. Throw me some questions right now and just at me, bro. I'm sure I missed things while I was talking. So the next step was we're gonna get to the Queen's Maker plot. We're gonna get into Ariane, the ending of the Christmas game, that kind of stuff. Actually, I wanted to go ahead and talk about Sir Eric the. Guilty Undertaker, his question from Slack, he said, well, not really a question, it's more a comment. He says, George may not be as, split ex as explicit as Tolkien about the world slowly getting shittier, but he has moments. Serious, introverted younger brothers trying and failing to live up to their older brother's reputation is a running theme. Yes, exactly. The Lannisters are cute Targaryen wannabes right out to their pension for brother-sister incest. Yes, that is also true. And while Luca more than Leslie seems to have been charismatic, well-liked man who seems to have a genuine talent for pleasing women in and out of the bedroom, he presumed too much of Alysanne and Jaehaerys' goodwill, overreached, and was gelded and sent to the wall. Ari's Oakheart is a horny dope who drools over women while out of his league and gets himself killed for no reason other than trying to prove how Arian, how gallant he is, and failing. The one thing that I, I disagree with there is that Arian is out of Eris's reach. I mean, it turns out, well, we're about to get to this, but basically it starts off that he is sort of sucked in by Arian, that she's doing that she's seducing him not out of genuine interest in the man, but she's doing it because of the position he holds in order to use uh, Marcella Baratheon. But it turns out that kind of like you see with other characters like Ares, like Duncan the Tall, that there are parts of him and there's a, I'm not sure what the right word is, maybe the simplicity of his outlook and how he, somewhere deep down, he tries to be a good person that Aryan ends up uh, falling for the man. So he's he is stupid to not realize that Arian's playing him but then it ends up backfiring in a way that's a little unusual it usually doesn't happen that the guy getting manipulated or the person getting manipulated ends up ends up falling back for them but it's kind of interesting in that way but yeah i think the comparison to luca more the lusty for aris okart is well placed and that you could probably imagine that Everything that Arius is talking about here is probably 
maybe word for word what Luca Moore went through all the time throughout his throughout his years on the Kingsguard, especially early on before he had three wives, maybe when he only had one, that kind of thing. And that's one thing I really enjoy about George's writing, how these things tend to echo off themselves. This isn't just a chapter about Ari's Ocard. It's also a chapter about Lucamore. It's also a chapter about Barristan with Ashara Dane. And it's it's a chapter about Jamie and Cersei when probably when Jamie first joined the uh, Kingsguard. These conversations keep repeating because these are common situations for Kingsguard to find themselves in. Also, probably Harwin Strong and Rhaenyra, maybe Kristen Cole and Rhaenyra, that kind of thing. Hey, Ursula T. A nice evening outside. Ah, you must be in Europe. Tear me apart, Lisa. Yeah, that's right. Now, I have one thing that uh, Austin Flowers brings up. Oh, good thing they didn't have sex then. He'd have, uh, have to give that to the Green Knight. Yeah, that'd be funny. If uh, <laughs> he charges Hota and he's like, I have to give to you what Aryan gave to me and starts scratching his back. Actually, that's something uh, Sasuke or Sarah brought up in the Slack. She wanted to talk about this chapter is infamous. The Soiled Knight for the description, the vivid descriptions of Ariane Martel's giant nipples. That is a thing. I'm not really sure why this chapter chooses the focus on it. But I thought there was something interesting about this that I think is undersold. Not just Ariane's massive nipples and that Aries likes playing with them. She plays back with his. During sex, she essentially tweaks him for a while and then scratches his back. The whole thing, amazing. Just, it's the nipple chapter. Just so much nipples in this chapter. <laughs> Luckily, no breast milk this time. Thankfully, George restrained himself and did not put uh, brush milk into his sex scene. It's kind of funny to think about where you can just imagine Arian just going like, yeah, gotcha. There seems to be a, a little bit of a rougher side to their sex play, I guess. I read the fine print with those vows. Is there fine print in the nightly vows? They make you swear and swear. How can you ever keep up with them? But yeah, good call here from Sasuke and Christina. The, the idea that the vows ask you to stop being human, but then the institution is treated as above people and vaguely superhuman. Yeah, using and then losing your human emotion shouldn't be shameful, but it is within the King's Guard. One of the vows of chastity ever worked out in anyone's favor? Unclear. It is unclear why it's a good idea. Hey, Christina Cunningham. Welcome. Yeah, dusky giant nipples. I, I think they get like seven references in this chapter. I was reading it last night. And I was just like, George, can we please stop talking about Ariane's nips? Like, can, can you move on at some point? But that is God help him. Going back to where we were. Ariane's game, as I said, starts off as pure manipulation. She is just planning to crown Marcella as the Queen of Westeros and then use the support of the Dornish anger over Oberyn to launch a war. And then I guess somehow she was going to try and use the power vacuum to secure her spot as ruling princess over Tristane and Quentin. I mean, this goes awry for a number of reasons, but the first of which is that Duran is aware that Ariane has seduced and made Ari's Oakheart her pet, basically. This is one of those things where I was talking about earlier, how when you notice that Ari's is bad at Savas, meaning you have to notice things that he doesn't. This is one of them. This is early on in the chapter. Prince Duran had promised as much, though Ari's had been shocked to see how aged and infirm the Dornish prince appeared. He did not doubt the prince's word. I'm sorry I could not see you until now or meet Princess Marcella, Martel had said when Ares was admitted to his salar. But I trust that my daughter Ariane has made you welcome here in Dorne, sir. She, she has, my prince, he answered, praying 
and pray that no blush would dare betray him. So all along here throughout the Quinsmaker plot, it has been doomed from the start because Duran has been aware of it. He's been the snake in the grass, as he likes to say, or the snake hiding, the grass hiding the snake. And he's been seeing what his daughter and the stand snakes have been up to. And this sort of betrays the idea that Ariane has in her head that she is like this great player of the Game of Thrones and she's totally going to outsmart everyone. Duran was aware and was having her or Ari's followed all along throughout their affair because honest, because obviously despite the Dornish robes that Ari's Oakard is wearing, he stands out. He's a reachman, a big muscular reachman carrying a, a Northern sword, basically totally out of place in the shadow city. There's nowhere he's going to be able to sneak that people aren't going to see him. So when you talk about the idea, when you get into Arian's chapters where she's like, who told on me? How did anyone figure this out? Well, directly it is Tyene. Tyene does spill the entire plot to Duran during Aria Hota's chapters, but it's also Arian's seduction of Ari sort of tipped her hand to Duran about exactly what was going on here. I think that's one of those fun things when you go back and read these chapters and you see exactly how aware of everything Duran is even from the start. Yeah, exactly. Guilty Undertaker. Who told Duran when he figured it out? He knew it all along. Also, Ariane is probably not that stealthy herself. She probably thinks herself stealthy because she doesn't get caught. But why doesn't she get caught? Because Duran tells his men to just follow and not get her in trouble. So it allows him to essentially keep track of her and what she's doing without while she essentially is unaware of it. She's essentially overconfident in her abilities. And in the Soiled Night, this kind of comes to a head when Aris meets with Ariane in the Shadow City to stop the relationship, especially since Duran has announced he will be moving Marcella to the Water Gardens, and that Aris can't write back to King's Landing be- because... Obviously, Marcella will be safer if no one knows where she is. That's completely untrue. Again, Arius doesn't grasp the importance of this in particular, that this move is not only something to remove Marcella from the eyes of the Iron Throne, it's basically bait for Ariane that he's making Marcella vulnerable to her plots. Again, Arius is not very good at Savaspi, who is Duran Martell. He's essentially freeing her from the castle, from Sunspear, from the Shadow City, so that Aryan can make an attempt. That's the that's kind of the whole idea between behind moving her to the Water Gardens. But obviously, Aryan, I mean, obviously, Aries's determination fails, and the two have a lot of passionate sex in this chapter. After they have their vigorous sex, which serves to break down Aries's defenses of his honor and his duty, Aryan then uses his affection for her and love against him to agree that Aris will assist her in crowning Marcella Baratheon, Queen of Westeros. Although how she does it is kind of a bit fascinating. She plays on the idea that Marcella, despite being a female, is a better person than Tommen to rule, and therefore she's the one that should rule, making an argument not only of Dornish succession, but of merit, which is something that Aris, who probably has whinged quite a bit about Joffrey, and actually does in this chapter, would find something that he would probably latch onto. Like, yeah, Joffrey sucked. What I wish I had served somebody I actually cared about. And that and that's part of the case for why Marcella should be the one that should rule. Although if you read this in an interesting way, Ariane's also making the case for Ariane. She's making a case for herself, which obviously I imagine Aries would agree with 
if you were talking about a, a struggle between Ariane and Quentin or Ariane and Tristane, it's setting up a future that Aries becomes her sworn sword, basically, and perhaps helps her take Dorne from her brothers, which is a little fascinating. And then Aries totally breaks down, agrees to help her in her quest. And this is kind of a very pivotal moment in A Feast for Crows and the story going forward, especially with Dorne, because it doesn't seem like it. It's just Aries Hogarth saying that I will help Ariane Martell crown Marcella. But I think the, the name dropping that happens here is important. In particular, he thinks of himself as Kristen Cole. And how Kristen Cole's decision to crown Aegon over Rhaenyra, along with the help of the small council we learned about in Fire and Blood, led to this enormous civil war that engulfed tens of thousands and destroyed the realm. Aris does not think about it in that way in particular. He more thinks about it, how Cole is a dishonorable person. But there's a definite idea here that this this moment of the two of them in post-coital manipulation that... This is an important thing that will happen. Hey, Davey Mac, finally catching the live stream. Love your videos and streams. Well, thanks. Glad you can make it. Oh, yeah. Slash smash that like button. Only five away. Five more of you guys smash that like button. I'm going to put on a silly hat. It's going to be real good. And not just for the silly hat. Obviously, YouTube cares about all these little inputs for deciding who it recommends to. So please do if you would like more people to find this fun time. So we get to the Queensmaker part. So Aris obviously joins the Queensmaker plot, Queensmaker plot, and the rest of the crew, including Darkstar, who is of the night, seeking to crown Marcella Barrett. Aryan internally freaks out that Aris will notice that she totally has the hots for Darkstar in his dangerous ways, and that she feels that her control on Aris is a little extreme. Oh, oh, we just got there. All right, funny hat time. A little tough with. I guess I can just take off the headphones. I'm not actually listening to anything. There we go. Silly hat time. Boom. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Thanks for slamming that MF and like button. That, yeah, that Orion feels that her control on Ari's is so complete that he's going to act extremely defensive of her and maybe try and kill anybody that, that she shows interest in, which is not a good trait from Ari's, but I guess Ariane's being realistic of the fact that she has made this guy love her completely to the point that he is willing to give up being a king's guard for her not great eventually uh, eventually though they are discovered there's some back and forth where aris tries to figure out the plan he doesn't really understand the plan because he's arch Oakheart, he's not good at savas etc yeah they are discovered ario hota and his men appear on a boat on the green's blood to end the plot this is supposed to be essentially game over that it's a it's not a life or death situation I mean, the guys are there, they are armed, they're prepared to kill, but the message is to Ariane that from Duran that basically, I gotcha. But come back to the palace, we'll talk about this and figure out. It's not meant to be that anybody's in danger here. And the rest of the crew seems to understand this, but obviously not Aris Oakheart, who struggles with Dorn, struggles with understanding plots and relationships and that thing. So he decides he's going to complete the Christmas game with the Green Knight. <clears throat> so here we go. This is the this is the finality of Sir Gawain's story in a Song of Ice and Fire, basically. Sir Aris Oakheart gave her one last longing look, then put his golden spurs into the horse and charged. 
He rode headlong for the pole boat, his white cloak streaming behind him. Arian Martel had never seen anything half so gallant or half so stupid. No! She sh- but she had found her sh- tongue too late. A crossbow thrummed and then another. Hotza bellowed a command. At such close range, the white knight's armor had as well been made of parchment. The first bolt punched right through his heavy oaken shield, pinning it to his shoulder. The second grazed his temple. A thrown spear took Sir Aris's mount in the flank. Yet still his horse came on, staggering as he hit the gangplank. gangplank. No, some girl was shouting. Some foolish little girl. No, please, this was not supposed to happen. She could hear Marcella shrieking too, her voice shrill with fear. Sir Aris's longsword slashed, slashed right and left. Two spearmen went down. His horse reared and kicked a crossbowman in the face as he was trying to reload, but the other crossbows were firing, feathering the big courser with their quarrels. The bolts hit home so hard they knocked the horse sideways. His legs out went out from under him and sent him crashing down the deck. Somehow, Aris Oakhart leapt free. By the way, Aris Oakhart is basically pulling a barristan settlement here. This is pretty impressive for trying to do a one against like 15 sort of situation. He even managed to keep hold of his sword. He struggled to his knees beside his dying horse and found Ario Hota standing over him. The white knight raised his blade too slowly. Hota's long ass, long axe took his right arm off at the shoulder, spun away, spraying blood, and came flashing back again in a terrible two-handed slash that removed the head of Ari's Oakart and sent it spinning in the air. It landed amongst the reeds, and the green's blood swallowed the red with a soft splash. So that is the end of the game. The Green Knight finished it and took Sir Gawain's head. Kind of an interesting way of, if you think about, if you compare Ares back to Sir Gawain, as we have been throughout this, that Ares essentially fell for everything that Sir Gawain resisted. And as a result, the Green Knight ended him ended up decapitating him and said that the real story lowers his head expecting to be decapitated while sort of he's wearing a magical sash given to him by the RN character that will keep him safe. But the Green Knight essentially brings down, pretends to hit him twice, and then brings down his axe a last, a last time and essentially just nicks his neck and says, that's the end of the game. He was never intending to behead him. It was a test of Gawain's character. And this is George's version of the end of the Green Knight and Sir Gawain. I'm guessing... I wonder what his, the meaning behind it for George is why he did it this way. It might be something along the lines of that he found Sir Gawain too unrealistic. Like, even with his flaws, maybe too perfect a knight. And that Sir Aris is maybe a more realistic version of this person. And how a, a normal person would deal with being faced with the Green Knight and the Christmas challenge. Maybe something along those lines. Honestly, I'd like to see you. I'd like to hear... Lady Gwyn talk about this if she has. And I bet she has some fascinating takes. Ario Speedwagon. Yeah, long ass axe. Yeah, messed that one up. Killed by Ario's wife. That's right. And Ario's wife, since he's the Green Knight, is the lady that seduced him. Interesting, interesting things. You think this would be the end of Sir Ari's Oakheart, though? Obviously, he's dead. His, his head has been chopped off. And he wasn't that big of a character anyway, right? So what does it matter? Well, 
there's going to be a lot of repercussions. We've already seen them throughout a Feast of Crows and a Dance with Dragons. There's going to be quite a few more going into the Winds of Winter. For instance, on a minor level, his death opens up the spot on the Kingsguard that Sir Robert Strong steps into. But more and more, way more importantly than that, is the effect that Ari's Oakheart's death has on Arya and Martell. That she takes the death of her White Knight extremely hard in a way that she didn't expect to. And internally, Arianne sort of thought of herself as a manipulator, a puppet master, that Arius was just a mark. She was, he's just a guy that she needed to seduce in order to make her plot work. She didn't care about him. He was just another pawn on the Savas board that she was moving around. And yet, directly after this, and during her time in the tower, and going into the Winds of Winter, Arianne actually finds herself thinking about Ari's Hokart quite a lot, and not in a, oh, bummer that he died, in a very serious and emotional way that she actually found herself loving Ari's, and that it was not just a game, that the, the time they spent together was real and important to her, and that this real connection that they felt between each other is sort of a subtle warning by the author that Arianne maybe isn't quite ready for the amoral morass that comes with playing the Game of Thrones, that she's not a, she's not the kind of person like Littlefinger that can just dispose of the people once he's done with them, where she actually, she still has a soul basically, and that to play at this level, you kind of have to let go of caring about people which Ariane is clearly not able to. As I said, Arius was supposed to be just a mark, just a means to an end, and instead an incredibly powerful loss for Arya Martell. And one question that actually she struggles with over and over and over again is she can't figure out why Arius Oakheart rode into Ario Hota's axe, his long-ass axe. Why did he do it? So I think this is kind of a... a a good thing for the comments because we're gonna be ending in a few in like uh, 10 minutes or so but what do you guys think what do you guys think in the chat what is your understanding after the stream and what we've talked about today why do you think Ari's Oakheart rode on Ario Hota knowing it was going to kill him what what emotions were in him because notably George does not tell us the last the end of the Soiled Knight chapter ends with Ari's just agreeing to go through with this but not, not anything about this. We don't see Ari's uh, being killed from his own POV. That doesn't happen. So we really don't know. But what do you guys think? I have some ideas. And in addition to that, we have the mystery of his death, which has echoed back to King's Landing. Everyone's kind of going like, hey, buddy. Hey, Duran. What happened to our Kingsguard? There's also the fact that Marcella got maimed in the aftermath, that Darkstar took the opportunity to take a slash at Marcella and run off into the sands. And then now they've tried to pin the whole thing on him, which may come to light if Darkstar finds his way, I don't know, into Aegon's camp or something like that. And there's a, there's a particularly good inflection point in the story that had Ares not charged Ario and Hota, it's extremely likely that Duran could have kept this whole thing under wraps, that it doesn't have to explode outwards. You don't need... Balon Swan coming down trying to investigate. You don't have to essentially push this war into high gear. That Arius's actions and his death has made it impossible for the Dornish to hide what happened. The schemes can be controlled and that they can't anymore. Which is kind of fascinating because 
again, I, I think as readers, most of us go back and go like, who cares about Ari's Okart? Who cares about this one random chapter? He's just a dumbass that got his head cut off. No, not really. George is going to make his death have meaning not only to Ariane, but to the story in general. All right, so let's see what you guys are saying. Christina K says, I think he felt it was a redemption for him if he died saving a member of the royal family, something to assuage his guilt and get him out of his situation in one go. Anime lover Nicole says he wanted to die fighting the Dornish just like his ancestors. Okay. Yeti Potato says maybe he panicked when he thought the party got caught. Fair. Or smiling says ancestors. Yeah, agreeing with that. It's like he snapped out of the hold that Ariana had on him. Not sure what that means. Uh, Dino Dom, he can't go back to King's Landing after he's been exposed, so he went down in a blaze of gro- uh, base of blaze of glory. I just said blaze of glory. Sounds like a Dunkin' Donuts donut. Mackenzie Menderly, he was scared to face the shame. Isabella Mago, I think he was giving Ariane the war she wanted. There's an interesting take too. I think the fact that he smiled sadly and and went forward with it is that. I think that's supposed to let you, as the reader, that he understands what he's about to do and that it's not, that he's not making a mistake, I guess. Aaron M says maybe he thought that Duran would treat him, would treat Ariane the way that Westerosi dealt with their own traitors. Okay. Could be. He doesn't understand a lot about Dorn. He has trouble with their culture. Austin Flowers, he knew his life was forfeit if War got back to King's Landing. Interesting. So you're saying that if if he got sent back to King's Landing, that they were going to inform on him and then therefore they would cut his head off or something, I guess. I think there's definitely an idea that within Aris's POV and the things he thinks about and the things he doesn't tell uh, Ariane about is that definitely feels a sense of doom that there is a there's sort of an idea that he wants to. If he has to die, he wants to die fighting Dornishman, that he feels that there's sort of a family legacy to that, that as an Oakheart, that this is how he should go out. But it's quite clear by the end of the chapter that his loyalty is not to his white cloak anymore or the Oakheart family. It's to Ariane Martell. He has given himself over to her. The question would be, why would Aries think that Ariane would want him to die in that situation? Uh, good call, Kraken Queen. He was wearing a silk cloak. Do you think he would restore its honor? This is something I didn't talk about, but this is definitely a thing where Aris has three cloaks. He has the two rough ones and he has the one silky one, the one that is basically for show. And that's the one he's wearing when he dies, sort of like he was expecting to go out. You can see a similar sort of thing with Barristan in the Winds of Winter sample chapters where he dresses himself up super nice before he goes out to face the... um the people attacking Marines. So there could be a parallel there. Definitely, I think that is important that he chose to wear his white silk cloak when he maybe he wanted to go down, much like wanted to go down as a King's Guard, basically. That could be that could be something of it. But I, I do think it should relate back to REN pretty heavily. That for some reason he thought that this was the right thing to do for her. Because everything he's doing from Soiled Knight forwards is he has given over his service from King Tommen and Queen Marcella. It's not for Marcella. His service is now to Ariane Martel. Uh, Sasuke says he is scared of all the terrible possible outcomes. At least he's going out seemingly protecting Marcella. He doesn't die this way. He could die in a sort of more terrible ways. That is true. Wanted to die. He wanted to die as a Kingsguard. I think it's a complicated question. And I think that's, I think that's one thing that George does really well 
he tells you throughout the chapter and throughout the rest of the chapters that Ari Sokart is not a complicated man. He's not a, well, he's not a, he's not a very smart man. He's not a witty man. Clearly he has a vortex of emotions that he's struggling to get a hold on and he doesn't know which way to go. And it's, as I made, I made the joke about the room earlier with the tearing him apart, but it is tearing him apart in the same way that being with Egret tore apart John and his duties to the watched, his duties to her, his duty to the North and how all these conflicting ideas are. How do you solve them? That's basically the question Jamie asks. How does he know what to do is right when he has so many different pressures on him? And Aris Okard is kind of a microcosm of all these things. Guilty Undertaker says, Brienne only wanted to die for Renly. Maybe Aris only wanted to die for Arianne. That's probably closer to the emotional core of it. He was giving them a chance to run like 15 feet. Yeah, they, they had no chance. They weren't running away. That was it was basically suicide. He ran into it knowing he was about to die. I, I struggle with the idea that he did it because he knows that what it would cause, because this, that's the thing. Aris is not good at Savas. Therefore, he's not going to be thinking in a larger political level. He's struggling to figure out the Queensmaker plot, basically the one he's in. I don't think he would look at Ario Hoto and go like, all right, so I die. This will create an international incident. Therefore, they're going to send Balon Swan. Therefore, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's not the level he thinks at. Uh, John is a little bit smarter than Aris. That is true, but they still have the same human heart in conflict themselves that George is so fond of thinking about and writing about. I don't think there's a, I don't think there's a simple answer to that as I'm doing an entire two hour stream about the guy. I don't know. Maybe there are smarter people out there in the fandom that have a, a more of a grasp on Aris Oakheart as a person and his motivations and why they think he did it. But I think the part you should really go back to if you're trying to figure this out is the line that he looks at Ariane and smiles sadly. It's probably in there somewhere why he did this. All right. So that's about where we're going to end up. If you guys have any last questions, you can at me, bro. Any last comments or questions, things I missed while we were talking. Christina K says, I wonder if at some point he realized she didn't feel about him like he feels about her. He used Ario as an escape. That would be a tragic ending to him. That after seeing the interaction with Darkstar, maybe he realized that Ariane is always flirty and that it's not personal to him that would be that would be kind of tragic well it would be tragic it'd be very that would be a heartbreaking realization i think you'd have to do a, a close reading of the rn chapters before his death to see if he figured it out but i think that could be that that's the right kind of emotional core for why aris would have done it or it's about her big nipples wow amazing stuff <laughs> it's all about Ariane's huge nipples and her twisting of Aris's and then scratching his back. That's it. You know, I think that's uh, I think that's probably a good place to stop and something for you guys to think about. Maybe go back and read this chapter. Maybe go back and read uh, the Soiled Knight and then read the Queen's Maker and uh, some of the Ariane ones, especially after Aris's death. And you know, see if see if there's an emotional core that you can grab onto and see if you can come up with a great explanation or a total explanation for why. Aris did what he did because George clearly asking you as the reader to think about it because Ariane is wondering it. She can't figure it out. Maybe it's there for you because you've seen into his head, that kind of thing. 
Anyway, I wanted to go ahead and thank everybody for showing up today. 170 likes, up to 160 viewers, I thought, at one point. Also to the Super Chatters, obviously, Maura Lee, Smith Crazy, Sm Smith the Crazy, I'm not sure. Uh, Vampirus 99, Patrick Morales. Uh, let me check what I do with my phone. Danny McKay, we sent them on PayPal. Thanks very much, everybody. Um, look out for Chapter 5 of Dying of the Light coming out in the next few days. I'm going to be spending a lot of time editing that audio. And piecing it together, obviously with Maester Mary of the Learned Hands podcast, who has new Sanry merch coming out. Go check it out. It's really cool. If you want to support me, go to patreon.com slash Magician. $5 level, you get access to all the patron-only episodes, including Dying of the Light. Down in the description, there's links to like Audible and my Threadless shop where you can get your own ass waffle gear and your own magician merch and all that other kind of stuff if you're interested. Maybe some new stuff going up in the future. I'm still thinking about it. And I will see you all this coming Saturday. Yeah, I'm not working, so I'll see you all in a week. Have a good Saturday.